what I did to try to minimize that feeling of I'm management and your staff was to have as transparent an organization as possible. So basically, the budget was not a mystery to anybody. Welcome to the Be Change podcast. We're your hosts, Warren Goldstein-Gelb. And Marcy Goldstein-Gelb. This podcast is for leaders and emerging leaders who care about social change and about how to make a great difference in the world. The podcast explores strategies, tools, and stories to help you strengthen your social change and nonprofit leadership skills. Hi, Marcy. So in the first episode of Be Change, as you probably remember, wasn't that long ago, uh, you interviewed me about the origins of the podcast. And now in episode 10 or 11, I'm interviewing you. The other exciting kind of change in the way we've been doing this is that we have our special guest, (laughs) John Consilvio, who has been the man behind these episodes, making sure that the podcasts are edited to high quality, is joining us to... Yeah, John is the producer, actually, of the show. He is the producer. So glad to have you, John. Hello. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay. So now my very first question is, what are you doing now? (laughs) So I am co-executive director of the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health. And our mission is to ensure that everybody who's earning their living can go do their work and return home alive, well, and with their hard-earned money in their pockets. Um, And most people are like... (laughs) Like, what's the deal with that? What does that mean? And I like to start with sort of my first experience in what's called COSH, which is the Coalitions for Occupational Safety and Health. There are 22 all around the country of these COSH groups. And I used to be the executive director of the Massachusetts COSH group. And the story I like to share is that on literally my first week, a gentleman came to our door, our office door, And he had a really hard time speaking and was just looking really, really sick. Um, His native language was Spanish. And what became really clear was that he was very ill. And I learned that he had been exposed to high, high levels of lead. He had been uh, a day laborer. And as those of us who live in Somerville, we know that often day laborers are picked up at the Dunkin' Donuts right across from, uh, what's the name of the field? Foss Park. Right across from Foss Park. Often they don't know where they're going or what they're going to do. And in his case, he was scraping off paint off of houses. And then there'd be another person who'd be painting those houses. So every day he'd be breathing in that lead paint and no protection, being unaware of any rights whatsoever, became super sick. And then the employer pretty much disowned him and said I had nothing to do with him. So he had no earnings, no living. Um, and he had a right. And I, we worked with him, went back to the employer with him to ensure that his rights were met. And eventually he was able to get medical treatment and get his wages and push the employer to do the right thing. But that's the general gist of the most critical people that we focus on are those that are have to earn a living and often forced to do very dangerous work. So I've heard, because I live with you, I've heard um, a lot of people ask, are the Kashas government agencies, part Mm -hmm. of government? Right. I've heard you say no and differentiate (laughs) the the difference between OSHA, which is the government group that has the responsibility for this, Mm -hmm. and uh, the Kashas. Right. Can you describe the difference? 
Sure. And the other the other thing that's funny, sometimes people say, is that mass cash? You know, you do make money, but but no, unfortunately, we don't. Um, yes. So basically, we are about building the power of workers, about organizing and ensuring that OSHA is effective, that the government agency that is deemed to enforce our worker safety and health does its job effectively, um, and that those that are most hidden in the corners are able to be protected by these laws. But it's not, unfortunately, only about laws because laws are only as strong as the agencies to be effective. And so we do a lot of organizing, building power, working with unions in particular, because unions are the most effective way for workers to have a strong voice in the workplace. Can you tell us a story going back a little bit further from your own background that led you to the journey of nonprofit leadership in general? My parents were both teachers and were active in the union, the teachers' union. Being active in the community and active in unions was something that was a part of my family's background. Um, But the other thing that was really kind of striking was that, you know, like most high school kids, you try to earn some some money to help pay for, for college or expenses. And so I worked in a supermarket being a clerk. And what I noticed was that I had pretty good benefits. I had a decent wage, and I was entitled to health benefits. In fact, I was entitled to glasses, which I thought was really cool. And I learned that that the reason that I had these good benefits was because I was part of a union. Um, and I later learned that my sister's first encounter with work was completely different from mine. She worked at a, um, a country club, kind of a low-level country club, but she was involved with sort of the, fixing the golf carts and doing some basic work there. And she was one of the first young women that was hired. And she describes going into the place where the workers eat and seeing pictures of naked women all over the wall and feeling like that was this horrible message that was being sent to her. And given her the way my sister is, she went back home and the next morning came in early and took down those pictures and pasted up naked men. Um, And so that never happened again. But, you know, my sister was able to do that because she wasn't taking care of kids and she wasn't desperate to earn a living. And so having that sort of striking difference in work quality, mine being a union shop, hers being this just sort of horrific um, non-union place, really does have an, an impact and, and to this day has, has really been an inspiration for me. And before that, professionally working your way backwards. Yeah. What I, were the formative experiences that you had? start off, I was, you know, waitress to sort of get my bearings. But then really all of my adult life, I've worked in nonprofit social justice work. And it's always been about earning a living, but doing it in ways that I can contribute to the world and find meaning. But in terms of this podcast, what I've been struck by is the different type of work conditions that I've experienced in different types of workplaces. So I'm not going to name names, but one of my first experiences was a very large nonprofit. And I very vividly recall um, going to the 10th floor where the chief executive officer of the nonprofit was located and going to the water fountain and being told, you know, that water fountain is for the chief executive officer. So that hierarchy was something that inspired me to do things differently. And then in the following job, I had a director who would lead by bullying. And um, what do you mean by that? If he didn't get his way, he would yell and scream. And I remember one instance, this didn't 
happened directed at me, but he actually took trash and dumped it on my coworker's desk. Wow. Um, so I had a very horrible, I had a good experience with the work, um, but seeing somebody in the lead of a nonprofit mission-driven organization treat the staff the way he did, again, had a big impact on me in, in what I wanted to see in the world. So I know that um, in all of your positions, one theme that unites them is the importance of community participation. But can you tell me why community participation is so important to you? It is true that somehow (laughs) in jobs that weren't designed to be about organizing, I've somehow always been inclined in that way. And I don't know if it's genetic. Certainly, you know, I mentioned my sister and, and I think she was a source of inspiration. I'm sure my parents were. But even my first job where I was simply supposed to be a landlord tenant kind of mediation or homeless prevention, what was most inspiring for me was to bring groups of tenants together to build power. And and I've always just recognized and, and been inspired by people coming together and asserting themselves as a group collectively. Um, and it's just been always apparent that if you have an individual, say in, in that case when I was working on housing, uh, an individual tenant versus an individual landlord, you've got this huge power imbalance and you can't get anywhere. So I've just seen all along that it's that collective action that really, you know, is is important. Further along, I was involved in something called microenterprise, which is basically self-employed people that are earning their living through their talents and skills. And you could view that as an individualistic thing. People are making an individual thing or they're selling an individual. Can, can you give me some examples of like what what the um, people were? you know, producing. Yeah. So, right. Well, that is a good example. So yeah, what was, I I loved working. It was called Working Capital. Um, It was a, it was a micro enterprise. It was called micro lending, peer group lending. I'll explain that. And so uh, you would have someone who made ties, for example. We had someone who made candles. We had someone who created buttons. You know, we had people doing all kinds of things, doing art. And if you do something like that alone, you know, it's really hard. You're isolated. You, you you know, you can't create an economy on your own. And so, again, even in this sort of concept of, a, of what could be considered individualistic, the whole model of the, the peer group lending was bringing people together in groups that they worked collectively together. They were inspirational to each other. They bought from each other. And they were actually responsible for each other's ability to access higher amounts of loan capital. So as a group, they would be voting for who got access to that first level of loan, $500. They had to all repay on time in order to get the second level, $1,000. And so there was a whole group process that, you know, again, was a source of inspiration for me is this idea of people working together and building power collectively. So that's just been a, a theme throughout, throughout all my work. What does community participation look like in nonprofit organizations? Can you give some examples of community participation that made the organization stronger? Yeah, I'll give more recently, you know, when I was working at MassCosh, um, the Massachusetts Coalition for Occupational Safety and Health, you know, a key part of our work was the idea that people who are impacted know best what the issues are that they're facing. 
uh, and given the right tools, they also know best the solutions. And the other piece of it is that if they're involved in pushing for these solutions, then you have a more sustainable impact. Whereas if I just solve someone's problem, well, what happens when they return and the problem is again, then they come back to me. And I think Willard uh, referred to that in our previous interview. Actually, all of our guests have talked about the importance of having people actively engaged at the table. And it's easy to say, and it's not easy to do. But what I think is most important is creating structures where they kind of have to be at the table, like it's a part of the organization. So for example, when I was at Mascosh, we knew that there were a lot of teenagers who were dying at work every year. You don't hear about this now. But back when, when I was starting at Mascosh, every year there'd be at least one or two teenagers who were dying on the job. And one of the problems was that the attorney general's office just didn't have the enforcement tools, it was a huge problem. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Obviously, a lot of young people were also just being exploited and being impacted by other dangers that weren't killing them, but were hurting them. And so nobody was working on that except the state, and they can't work at the community level and engage young people. And so when we wanted to begin to work on young people's issues, I wasn't going to be the one to decide, well, what's going to address young people's issues. We did have an 18-year-old young woman who was on our staff, and she was passionate about this. But even she needed to have young people at the table. And so we, from the very beginning, we engaged youth as peer leaders. And it's not like we're the only ones who've done this, but engaging youth as peer leaders to actually create the program, to design it. And then every year, we would bring in more and more youth as peer leaders to both do education on young workers' rights, which is which is important, but also really their researchers to figure out what are the big issues facing young people, and then they decide how they're going to enact solutions. It's well-documented and well-known that peer-to-peer is an effective way of making change. It impacts the peers' lives. It impacts the people you're trying to affect. And I think that's one way to help ensure that people that are impacted are having a sustainable impact. Okay, well, let me just be a devil's advocate here. Go for um, it. <laughs> why couldn't you just have gone to the data directly and um, found out the number one cause of injury and death among teens and as an organization just started advocating for a correction at the attorney general's office? So that's an excellent question. And some organizations are more advocacy oriented where they, you know, as a staff, they may have lobbyists or they may, as staff, be advocating. And my own personal philosophy, but also certainly many organizations that are involved with social justice, believe that there needs to be a more deeper analysis by the people impacted to determine the biggest problems and the most effective solutions. When we were early on starting this program, there was an 18-year-old, Christian Jambron, who uh, was murdered at a CVS. He was stabbed to death. And, you know, naturally, the, the teens in our program were really distraught by this and had the opportunity to meet with the mother of this young man, this incredible activist, Tasiana, I'm going to name her. Um, and as a result of that, we're really um, passionate about finding out more what was happening in retail stores, 
what was going on with young people. There's no data on that about teenagers working in retail stores and some of the things they're facing. That doesn't exist, but they knew clearly there was some sort of a problem because somebody just died. And so they conducted many, many surveys and asked what the experiences were from young people and what they learned, which you know was not known before, was that a lot of young people were working at late night hours on their own, were not well aware of procedures when somebody committed a robbery or shoplifted, um, didn't know what to do, and were at grave risk of, of injury and death. And as a result of that, they were able to shape the bill that was filed, um, speak very articulately to what the problem was, because they saw it firsthand. And as a result of that, the bill was passed in a fairly short period of time, which was is remarkable, um, and having teenagers actually have an impact, I'm sure to this day is a source of huge inspiration for them and is very meaningful for the bill itself. And now they're involved in its enforcement, their watchdogs. And what better watchdogs than young people in the community who um, know other young people so they'd be able to see if the child labor laws are being violated. What was really interesting to me about that whole strategy is you were kind of in some way, in a very informal way, creating somewhat of a union. You know, they're not paying dues and collectively negotiating salary or anything like that. But at the same time, you're empowering them to speak up for themselves and also in showing that they're part of this larger group. And and knowing that you're part of this larger group and you're not just an individual being mistreated by your boss, you're actually part of this sector of the workforce that kind of empowers people in a, in ways that unions do. And so that was just kind of an interesting. No, that absolutely, in fact, a critical, a critical piece of my work now with the Kosh groups, but it really has been all along, is the recognition, again, that by bringing people together, be it young people who are working to try to change a law and, and ensure that the teens uh, are safe in the workplace or tenants in housing, that the only way that people create change is by acting collectively. Having a union, what's what's great about unionism is that you actually have a document that makes it legal for you to bargain with the with the people in power. And you don't really have that anywhere else. You don't really have that in housing. You don't have that anywhere. So that's something that is absolutely essential. Um, but if you don't have a union for whatever reason, the next best thing is collective action and collective negotiation and pressure and using all the tools in your toolbox, be it legal, be it public, uh, drawing public attention, as those young people did when they released their report. Um, and that's absolutely I, – I agree with you, John. It's very powerful. Are there other um, strategies that you can offer for nonprofit leaders to increase the amount of participation in their organization? having like a internal structure where it's a part of the organization, like peer-to-peer or uh, a membership. And the other piece that organizations often think about, and I think uh, Maria Elena spoke to this and some of her other guests, is um, hiring from the base and making sure that your staff reflect the community because they truly understand the needs and, and can build those relationships. And then there's the board of directors. And I think that some organizations just start out with this is, you know, a board is there for fundraising, so I'm going to have heavy hitters on the board. I know that Maria Elena mentioned that in her organization, it was critical to have those that are impacted on the board. And clearly, there's a role for, for fundraising by board of directors, but it's, it's essential to have your stakeholders on the board. 
And that means thinking about how are you going to run your organization, your board meetings, for example. In some cases, it means that they have to be bilingual and fully bilingual, where everybody, if, if, if you're not all bilingual, you must all wear headsets and all the materials are in two languages. So there's things to think about if you're going to be ensuring that your organization has community participation. Great. And just to be clear, um, Maria Elena is Maria Elena Latona. And if you look, do a search for Maria Elena Latona, you will find her on the on the Beat Change podcast. And it's a very good episode. All right. So I'm going to switch now to unions. Many, many nonprofit leaders say that they support unions and unionization. But when you ask them if they would support a union in their organization, they uh, might have some worries. At Mascosh, you had a union and the organization made it work. How did you and your staff accomplish that? Well, let me start by saying that you're right on the nose that not only do a lot of nonprofit organizations have uh, uneasiness about unions, but far too many actually actively fight against having a union in their workplace and and do uh, actions that are unfortunately similar to what corporations do. They may not be able to afford to hire anti-union lawyers and thugs, but they certainly do things that are seemingly contradictory to their mission. So for, for me, you know, when I came to Mascosh, Mascosh was already unionized. And it was the first time I had a, a was in a nonprofit where there was a union staff. It was also it was also kind of my first time being an executive director. I'd I'd been like an interim, and so I perf- I was perfectly happy with the idea. I mean, the the whole mission of the organization is to strengthen unions and unionization, but that's different than actually being in an organization where you have union staff. And so what I found was that what was really very positive about having a union was that things were really clear, like things were in writing. People knew, here's kind of the steps that we know we're going to have a collective bargaining process to talk about wages, to talk about benefits. We know if there's a problem, there are certain steps to go through. So I like the fact that it was really clear and there wasn't this sort of tension around, well, what am I supposed to do and distrust. The other thing that I that I did find challenging is that I was the executive director. I was the only one who was on the management side, except for the board. So the entire staff were all in the union, and I wasn't. So I, what I didn't like or I found um, challenging is that I'm an activist, so I want the staff to have great benefits and working conditions, and yet I had the constraints of I've got to raise the budget, you know, and I have to worry about that. So what I did to try to minimize that feeling of I'm management and your staff was to have as transparent an organization as possible. So basically, the budget was not a mystery to anybody. Everybody was involved in talking about the budget. Everybody knew my salary. Um, My salary wasn't that much higher than the rest of the staff. Um, Benefits were the same. And uh, we would review, okay, here's, here's where we are with the budget. They trusted that I was going to raise as much as I can. I'm not sitting around and just like, sorry, we're not making any money. I'm working really hard to raise as much as I can. They're involved in that. We discuss fundraising. And I really think the transparency was critical and built trust. And so rather than them saying, I demand 
whatever they demand. It was more, let's figure out how we can ensure that we have decent conditions and that we can improve our quality of life, but we don't want to bankrupt the organization. So it was really, um, we approached it from, we have two missions. We have a mission to ensure that we impact our community as much as possible. And we have a mission of ensuring that our staff are treated with dignity, that they have decent wages, they have decent conditions, and we're going to try to achieve both as much as we can. So I'm just imagining a, uh, an executive director or somebody who's aspiring to be an executive director hearing that essentially you printed out the entire budget, including salaries. And uh, I mean, I think that would cause a lot of executive directors to quake in their boots. <laughs> I don't know exactly how other organizations do it. For us, there were actual levels that everybody knew. So for the staff, everybody knew that when you came in, this is your level. And then, you know, when this cost of living, it's going to go up. And then if you've been for around for a certain number of years, you move up to this level. So for me, transparency, fairness, those are sort of the pinnacles of people uh, feeling that they are respected and that they can go to work every day and have morale. Like there's a loss of morale when people are like, wait, what are you getting? There's, you know, male, female, there's racial issues. And so you want to ensure from the get-go that there's transparency and that there's fairness in how these levels are developed. And, and the staff are involved in developing the levels. Did, did you find that level of transparency also provided somewhat of an education to the staff, like being a staff, that organization, just having insight into what goes into raising the budget, where you allocate those funds, helped further the leadership traits in the staff. I think that that, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right. I think that there's sort of like two benefits. I think one is that Transparency creates a sense of trust. But I do also think that there's an important skill in understanding budgets and how they're made and making priority decisions. And that's actually something that was a part of the board. We had a, a structured board training as well. And that, I'm not saying we're the only ones who do this. But again, one recommendation for nonprofit leaders is that you have a board orientation and you you train board members in how do you look at financial statements, making it very, very simple and straightforward so that people are not overwhelmed. And we had actually a tip sheet that I use to this day for our for a national cost training as well. Like, here are some most important things that you need to look for when a director is presenting their, their financial report. And so having the board fully understand, here's our constraints, here's how you look at a budget, here's how you know what we're doing, and the same with the staff. A final question for me is, how do you distinguish between participation from the staff and participation from the community? I love that question. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I teach a leadership track at the Harvard Trade Union program. It's for union up-and-coming leaders who work for unions or maybe they're union stewards. So one of the uh, students, again, a, a union member, said the union doesn't exist for their staff. The union exists for the members. And they were saying this because the union staff really are there to serve the membership. The membership have priorities and they need to be focused on those priorities. Another student said, 
well, I work for the union. Aren't I as much a part of the labor movement as anybody else? So when I when I facilitated my next class, I said, okay, here are two quotes. <laughs> Which is right? And from my own perspective, um, and from many of the students as well, both are right. It is important that the core of a social justice organization is about the impacted community, the impacted constituents. They should be at the fore. They should be at the table. They should be leading the charge, identifying the issues. That doesn't mean that that the staff are just simply machines to carry out, you know, anything that the organization charges them with. And too often we see organizations, be it union or otherwise, just burning and churning the staff to oblivion. So I think I think for staff, it's critical that they are a stakeholder, that they have a say, that their working conditions are really critically important as well. So I think both play an important role and need to be recognized. And um, it's not one or the other, but both. When I when I mentioned my history, I mentioned uh, working for the, the bullying executive director. And again, I think that employees of nonprofits um, deserve to be treated with respect and justice, uh, to have a voice, to, to be part of a union, to have decent wages and benefits. And it doesn't have to be at the expense of the membership. But it seems that you had quite a few, for lack of a better term, anti-role models that yeah. inspired your management style. So I was just wondering if you had any positive role models, if there were any anyone that you thought did a particularly great job and that you you took a piece of their approach or their philosophy or... <laughs> so... Uh, after a couple of not so wonderful role model executive directors, um, I had the opportunity to to start at Working Capital as the sort of second staff person, along with the with the founder and executive director Jeff Ash. And Jeff was very much more like a partner with me as opposed to a top down approach, and uh, and that's how our approach was with the rest of the staff. But what I what I will always remember about about Jeff was. His very inspirational and simple expressions that always stuck with me, and one was, um, they know how, which was really a belief that the people that you're engaging um, bring a lot to the table and just given the right tools will be able to thrive and survive, you know, succeed. And he also had another expression, which was ready, shoot, aim, which was really about you've got to try things out and learn from them and then try to improve from there. And that, you know, was was something that I, I found really inspirational as well. But the other thing that I benefited a lot from is many of us, both Warren went to Tufts Urban Environmental Policy Program, and I went to the Community Economic Development Master's Program, which was at New Hampshire College. And we both had the same leadership development teacher, uh, Dakota Butterfield, who um, very much imbibed this approach of facilitative leadership and engaging the members and engaging staff in, dem- in building democratic organizations. And that, you know, really, truly resonated with me. It was just exactly um, what I wanted to see in an organization. And that's why we're here today with, with this particular podcast. Well, Marcy, thanks for sharing your um, perspective, and I'm sure I'll hear all about... (laughs) 
in the kitchen. <laughs> in the kitchen, um, or in the in your office. Um, but uh, <laughs> but thank you again for sharing your wisdom with us, and um, and thanks to John for joining us today. Thanks for joining us on the Be Change podcast. If you like the show, subscribe on whatever podcast player you are listening on and on our website, b-change.net. Please follow us on Facebook and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks to our producer, John Consilio, and to our partners, Somerville Community Media and Boston Free Radio.